you find that today you're pulled toward newer, better, bigger things? Is your world driven by getting to the next success, to the next win, to the next upgrade? Do you struggle to find satisfaction, contentment, and consistency? An effort to stay ahead in the game is debt building up around you. Are you out of energy? Are you out of hope? What if you were able to let go of that feeling to strive for more? What if you could live in a place of peace, knowing you were taken care of? What if you no longer needed to worry about measuring up? What if living with less is actually living with more? now in this service what we did at the end of the last service, okay? Let's do that. Let's do that. All right, let me take that from you there, buddy, All okay? Right. And uh, what we did, my name is Gary. It's a pleasure. I want to thank Ken and Scott for the privilege of being with you, the elders. At the end of the first service, the church family pronounced a blessing on Ken and Annette. You see, they're leaving. When he walks off from the stage, they're going to get in these giant Penske trucks, and they're getting on the road right now to drive 1,900 miles to their new home in Indianapolis, the holy city, by the way, all right? Uh, I will be back, though. It's the Jerusalem of the West. I just want you to know that. And what I asked the congregation to do, because I can say, been there, done that. I know the emotions that he and Annette are going through. Leah and I uh, went through the same. And uh, I believe so powerfully in this book, when we speak these words over people, Uh, they do not return void. Isaiah 55, verse 11, the word of God goes forth. It accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. He cannot return void. And so I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please, and we're going to use Zephaniah chapter 3. It says in verse 17, the most incredible things, and I'm going to ask you, Ken, my dear friend and brother in Christ, fellow pastor, would you put your hands out to receive? And would you look him in the eye, would you speak from the bottom of your heart the words that I say? And at the end of that verse, I'm going to offer a prayer on behalf of all of us for Ken and Annette. And you look at these people who love you dearly, all right? Okay. The Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing and quiet you with his love. Pray with me, please. God, we are so grateful for Ken and Annette and all that they have come to mean to these people of God. We thank you for this community of believers who love and cherish their pastor and his wife. And now we pray for the longs as they get on the road, literally in minutes, that you would dispatch legions of righteous warring angels to protect them every one of those 1,900 plus miles, that there will be nothing in any way, shape, or form to harm them. And we pray that you would shield them with righteous warring angels against the evil one who has come to kill, steal, and destroy, that he will not rob kin in a net of their joy, that every day this week when they wake up by your great grace, the joy of the Lord will be their strength 
and you will move them into the season of life with great thanksgiving and great anticipation of the work that you will have them to do next in advancing the kingdom of God. We pray for Scott and Sandy, the elders, the church family here at North Shore, that this church family will not miss a beat. She will move forward with great momentum, advancing the cause of Jesus in this corner of the world that you have entrusted to them. And they will do so with great courage and wisdom and compassion for people who are far from God. And Almighty God, be the one who is honored and glorified in this moment for your servant Ken, who has been so faithful and who finishes so strong. We pray this prayer in the name of our beloved Jesus, believing that you can do immeasurably more than all we ask or even think. And with one heart, mind, and soul, together we say, amen and amen. Can we show our appreciation? God bless you, buddy. God bless you. Thank you. Let's get in the word. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you. Uh, again, I'm grateful for the invitation of Ken, Scott, the elders. I'm from Indianapolis, been a preacher almost 40 years, and uh, I count it a privilege whenever I have uh, opportunity to open the word of God. I, I'm praying and believing that we're going to be challenged as well as equipped to live as followers of Jesus all the more effectively. Uh, Back in the Midwest, I know of a couple of guys who are businessmen, and I heard a story about them. One guy was opening another restaurant in a new location, and uh, he, uh, his buddy and his wife said, let's send some flowers, and so they did. They ordered some huge, expensive flowers that said, good luck in your new location on them. He and his wife went over during lunch to personally congratulate their friend, and as they walked in, they looked for the flowers. They were nowhere to be found, so he just said to his friend, hey, uh, any flowers arrive? And he said, yeah, funny joke, ha-ha. And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, they're back in the kitchen. You sent a funeral wreath that says rest in peace. What's up with that? And he said, oh, we did not. That had to have been a mistake. I'm so sorry. We'll make it right. They went to the floor shop and said to the florist, what, what gives? You sent our buddy flowers that say rest in peace funeral arrangement. You were supposed to send that great big expensive uh, arrangement we ordered. Good luck in your new location. She apologized and she said, I will make it right. I promise in just the, a few moments, g give me a, a chance. I've got a much bigger problem on my hands. And the guy said, what could be a bigger problem than this? And she said, listen, I got to find the funeral in town that have flowers that say good luck in your new location. <laughs> so... This is somewhat of a new location. I'm here with you today. I'm not trusting in luck. I'm trusting in the Holy Spirit that he will move powerfully. He is God in our skin. God has no skin. He is spirit. Jesus is God with skin. He moved into our neighborhood, put on flesh, and became one of us. And the Holy Spirit is God in our skin. Would you pray with me, please? Holy Spirit, you're the master teacher. And how grateful we are that here at North Shore, in this moment, the ground is holy only because of your presence. The righteous living God is among us and within us. Holy Spirit, will you teach us? Would you do something to our hearts, our minds, our souls that we would be eager to hear from you? That every single one of us, beginning with me, would have ears with which to hear 
and in your strength alone, may we leave differently than when we walked in. That people all around us, wherever we go, today, tomorrow, the days ahead, they would see Jesus in us. We ask this in the name of Christ, the Son of the living God, amen. All right, we're gonna get into the word and we are gonna talk about money today. If you happen to be a guest, uh, I'm not gonna make an apology, never have in 40 years about preaching about money and never will. My Jesus, uh, master preacher, my model, he preached many times about money. As a matter of fact, over a third of his parables were about money and never once did he apologize. Oh, sorry, gotta talk about money today. So I'm not gonna do that, never have, never will. Likewise, in this book, there are over 2,300 verses about money. Now, one of the rules of hermeneutics, the science of interpreting this book, if something's repeated, it is important. God wants us to see something. And you know what? The leaders of North Shore are incredible people. They want to make sure that you and I hear the word of God all about marriage, all about family, all about forgiveness, all about how to live a victorious life. Well, guess what? They want to make sure that we also hear what this book has to say about money and the things that money can buy. Because guess what? Every single one of us has to deal with money. Uh, in order to keep clothes on the back, a roof over the head, food on the table, we got to know how to rub two nickels together. And this book tells us how to rub two nickels together. That's why North Shore is in this series too much, living with less in the land of the more. And uh, it's for good purposes that our lives will be forever changed uh, and a reflection of this book. Now, on my flight on the way here, uh, the flight attendant made an announcement at one point. I don't know where we were, maybe over in North Dakota or someplace. But, he, but she said... Um, uh, the captain has illuminated the fasten seatbelt sign. We are approaching turbulence. So uh, what I want to say to you is buckle up because we might get into some turbulence today in the word of God. And God wants us to have ears with which to what? Hear what the Spirit, capital S, says to the churches. Just like at the end of every one of the seven letters to the seven churches in, Jerus uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. All right. So we're gonna start wide, we're gonna start this way, and we're gonna come down to a discovery. So you stay with me, you might be wondering where on earth is this guy going? We're gonna talk about debt today, gotta talk about debt, and we're gonna have a great uh, word of hope when we get down here to this discovery, a great, incredible word of hope. Now, DUI, anybody wanna take a stab at that? That stands for driving what? Under the influence, D-U-I, driving under the influence. It happens when an officer of the law, a gendarme, he pulls or she pulls us over on the suspicion that we are driving under the influence and they do a field sobriety test. We might have to see if we can walk along uh, a straight line. They're going to listen to our speech to see if it is slurred, a field sobriety test. Because if indeed we have impaired thinking, there will be impaired driving. If we are under the influence of a drug or a drink of choice. 
Now, you might be thinking, what on earth does that have to do with debt, everything? You know, we'll see. You stay with me. We're going to start wide. We're going to keep working our way to an incredible discovery. So now we're going to open our Bibles to the Old Testament, to the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 32. So whether you open a conventional book or use your phone. I never thought 40 years ago I would say, take out your phones, please. Back then, they were attached to a wall. They, they, they didn't go anywhere. So however you look it up, join me in Exodus chapter 32, and here we're going to see an incredible story. It's one of the most stupid, stupid moments in the life of a guy named Aaron. Now, context before content. That's another rule of hermeneutics. We can't interpret the Bible responsibly unless we're looking at context, how the stage is set in a passage before we look at its content. So what's going on here? Chapter 32 of Exodus. The Israelites have just come out of a country where they were slaves. What was the name of that country? It was... Egypt, exactly, Egypt. They had been there hundreds of years, and now in chapter 32, this episode, what we're going to read of, takes place only 90 days after they left. Only three months have passed. When we read the previous chapters, we get the timeline, only three months since they left slavery in Egypt. And that's where we're picking up verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, Remember, Moses is at the top of the mountain. He's meeting with who? With God. When he was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Remember, Moses and Aaron are siblings. They're brothers. Aaron is the big brother. Moses is a little brother. When Moses was so long in coming down, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Watch this, fashioning it with a tool. Where would that tool have been? In his hand. This guy, Aaron, handmade this idol. It says it right there in the text, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Stop right there for a moment. It wasn't bad enough that Aaron made, handmade an idol. He then built an altar where he would place that idol where people would bring their sacrifices, and it says early in the morning. That means that they set their alarm clock early. They were excited about Christmas morning. They were going to get up out of bed. They were going to have sacrifices to this golden idol, and then they were going to party hardy because verse 6 says, afterward they sat down to eat, drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. And when we study the Hebrew of that phrase, indulge in revelry, they did all manner of evil with each other's bodies. That's what it means. They had an orgy. And these are God's who? God's people. Incredible. Off the chart. Absolutely board certified stupid Aaron. Because Aaron is the high who? The high 
priest. He's the senior minister. He's the chairman of the elders. He's the big pig at the trough spiritually when it came to God's people. As a matter of fact, in the earlier chapters of Exodus, he gets the top 10 list. And I'm not talking about David Letterman's top 10 list, David Letterman of Indianapolis fame. Uh Uh-uh. No, God's got the original top 10 list, and one of those top 10 items was, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not make with your hands any graven image. It reads also previous to this moment, God says to them, don't make any gods out of gold or silver. Ding, ding, ding. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Aaron, high priest, how could you have done this? As a matter of fact, his little brother comes down off from the mountain. Check this out. Chapter 32, verse 21. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin. Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. Oh, all right, let me think about that. Okay, I will. All right. Uh, As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave it to me, the gold. I threw it into the fire, and shazam, out came this calf. What a bold-faced what? Lie. Bold-faced lie. He fashioned it with his own hands using a tool, it says, and he is the big pig at the trough spiritually. He listened to the wrong voices. You see, Moses is pulling him over, not for a DUI, uh uh-uh. He's pulling him over for an LUI, living under the influence. They have lived for hundreds of years in Egypt under the influence of that culture. Egypt had many, many, many gods, and now all of a sudden, God's people say, give us gods, make us gods. And he listened to the wrong voices and gave in immediately. Incredible. Off the charts, stupid. And living under the influence didn't happen only back then. It's happening right now to all of us. We are living under the influence of the opulent, overspending American culture. And we easily listen to the wrong voices of those who are experts at marketing the next model of iPhone. We listen to all the wrong voices of the people saying we have to have 5,000 square feet under a four-stall attached garage. We've got to have a truck and a car and an SUV and a boat. We've got to have a cabin. We've got to have have this. We've got to have 30 pair of designer jeans, 12 pair of shoes in the closet. Got to have a winter wardrobe and a spring wardrobe, a summer wardrobe. We have all manner of voices that are shouting in our ears, and we're listening to the wrong voices. And we have what we, we could call impaired thinking. And listen up. How I think determines how I live. Impaired thinking leads to impaired living. And right now, the Holy Spirit hopefully is stirring in our lives. Have we been shaped by the culture or do we shape the culture, the church? See, the church is strong salt and bright light, or should be. We, the church, should be shaping the culture of America, but all too often the American culture shapes the church, and the church is not a time of service. The church is not an address on a street. The church is a gathering of people who love Jesus, and so often the culture is shaping us and not the other way around. We have impaired thinking, and how we think determines how we live. So how I think about money and the things that money can buy determines how I'm going to use that money. 
Jesus said it this way, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six. He said in verse uh, 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, there's not room for two on the throne of our lives. There's only room for King Jesus if he's king at all. So what happens is when we fall under the influence of our culture, when we live under its influence, we start spending money that we don't have to buy things that we don't need to impress people we don't even know. That is true all across America today. We spend money that we don't have, and if we don't have that money, we borrow it. We spend money we don't have, it's called debt, D-E-B-T. We spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need in order to impress people we don't even know. We want them to turn heads when they see the kind of a car or truck that we drive and pull up at the stop sign. Hey, look at this set of wheels. <laughs> we want to impress them with the address where it is that we live. So you and I have got to understand something. We buy into the myth of more. But that is a lie out of hell. The myth of more when more is never enough. More of this, more of that. And, and here's a law of physics. The larger the mass, the greater hold it exerts. The larger the mass, the greater hold it exerts. The more stuff we have, the harder it is to let go of the stuff. As a matter of fact, that, boy, that'll preach. I remember uh, a conversation that Jesus had with a rich who? Young ruler. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, <laughs> the story is repeated. It was so very important in the minds of those three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So this young man runs up to the feet of Jesus, falls at the feet of Jesus, and he says, Master, tell me, what must I do to be saved? And even before Jesus replies, Mark chapter 10, verse 21 says, he looked at him and loved him. Now think about that with me. Put, let's put on those theological thinking caps. He looked at him and loved him. Not only was Jesus fully human when he walked on this earth, but he's fully who? Fully God, that's right. And God is omniscient. So Jesus is already looking ahead. He already knows that this young man is going to say, oh, no thanks, Jesus, talk to the hand. He already knows that this young man is going to reject him, but yet he still, what him? Loves him. What a wonderful, incredible Savior we have. Jesus, who doesn't change, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, as it says in Hebrews, he still loves people who even reject him. We gotta get that straight, church. And so here's this young guy, and Jesus says, okay, if you, you wanna know what, uh, to, to be saved, you gotta go sell everything you have and give the money to the poor and then come follow me. And at that, the young man's face fell. He walked away sad because he had great, what? Wealth, great wealth. So you see, the larger the mass, the more hold that mass exerts, and that happened with the rich young ruler. Now, let me just push pause here, time out. That's the only time Jesus ever said that to anybody. And he said it to the young man because he could tell that all of his stuff had become a what to him? An idol, an idol. So what you and I have gotta deal with now is this thinking has the stuff that I own, have I crossed the line, the line, and now my stuff owns me? And if so, I'm spending money I don't have, call it debt, 
to buy things I don't need to impress people I don't know. And if, if I live that way, my life's going to be a mess. I'm not going to have two nickels to rub together. All right, now I want to go out to the Internet, and we're going to ask, ask our tech team to pull up on the screen the U.S. debt clock. As a matter of fact, just Google this sometime, U.S. National Debt Clock or usdebtclock.org. And uh, this is real time. Our national debt is 22.8 trillion dollars. Now I remember back in the day when that turned one trillion. Ronald Reagan was president. It was October of 1981, and uh, it was the talk of the country. We can't believe it. Our national debt is a trillion dollars. Now it's 22.8 trillion. I was out uh, in Delaware earlier this summer, and I had that pulled up on the screen. I was preaching in a church 15 minutes from the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, they were using the book too much, and when that came up on the screen, the national debt was 21 0.8 trillion dollars. Look what's well, look what's happened in three months. Our national debt is escalating at an exponential rate, and that's just what we call the statutory debt. The statutory debt. When we add to that the full national debt, the full and complete obligation of our country. When we add to that social security that so many in this room have paid into. It's an obligation that our government must pay. When we add to that uh, military retirements, et cetera, when we take all of those other obligations and we add them, which are not a part of the legal statutory debt, our obligations, our debt as a nation bumps, listen, $95 trillion right now. We are the number one debtor nation on the face of the earth. There's no other country on earth with a debt like ours. And it's not only a country, it's state and local government. State and local governments are head over heels in debt. I remember nationally when Greece filed bankruptcy. I remember when California, they were insolvent just a few years ago. They did not have the money to pay obligations, so, so they were issuing vouchers all kinds of vouchers to businesses and, and individuals. They had no money on hand to, to meet their obligations. I remember when Detroit, I remember when Stockton, California, when they filed bankruptcy, cities filed bankruptcy. So listen to my heart on this, church, family. Just as a person can become insolvent, that means we do not, our, we do not have the capability of paying our bills. We are insolvent. Our obligations exceed our assets. Simple definition. It can happen to a business. Many businesses declare bankruptcy. It can happen to a city government, a state government, and even to a nation when our obligations cannot be met. And our payment on just the interest on our legal statutory debt of $22.8 trillion, the interest payments keep climbing and climbing and climbing, and it's becoming one of the greatest expenses of our federal budget. And when we can't pay that, we're broke. And the rubber's going to hit the road, but nobody in Washington has the guts to talk about this harsh reality. And then when we add to that all of our consumer debt right now across America, Americans are more in debt than they have ever been, over a trillion dollars in debt, mortgages, credit cards, car payments, and not only consumer debt, but student loan debt is uh, at epidemic levels, $1.5 trillion. It's never been that high. 
It's very common for somebody graduating from school to have a $400 student loan payment every month, and then they've got to find a house, they've got to find an apartment, they've got to get a car, etc. People are starting right out of college already broke, and then some. And then retirees and debt. I'm 63 years of age, and people who are retiring right now are retiring with more debt than ever before in the history of our country. One-third of Americans who retire have a mortgage that they still own on their house. I thought that when you retired, you were to be out of debt. No longer. Uh -uh. As a matter of fact, people who are 65 and older, it's the fastest-growing demographic in our country for people filing bankruptcy, 65 and older. We are drowning in a sea of red ink, spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know, and it's all a lie out of hell. So what are we going to (laughs) do? Whisk detergent. Do you remember whisk? All right. Some years ago, those of us who are older, you'll remember this commercial You'll you'll understand we're about right here, okay? We're about right here. Stay with me, all right? Stay with me. There's good news coming. There is. Trust me. I remember a commercial where the homemaker was washing her husband's shirts, and it said, oh, she's tried soaking them out. She's tried scrubbing them out, but still she gets what? Ring around the collar. Oh, those filthy rings. You know, she's pushing her hair back with these soapy hands. She's tried soaking them out. She's tried scrubbing them out, but still she gets ring around the collar. That commercial that aired for years kept pointing a finger of blame at that homemaker, that wife, accusing her of not knowing how to do the laundry. The finger of blame should have been pointed to that husband asking the obvious question, when will that guy learn to wash his neck? That's the question (laughs) that should have been asked, all right? So, there's an obvious question that needs to be asked, and here's the obvious question. When are we going to repent and live according to this book of unchanging truth? When are we going to stop spending money that we don't have to buy things that we don't need to impress people we don't know? When are we going to change our ways? That's the question that obviously needs to be asked. Now, I want to get down here a little bit into some detail in the text. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, or 28 rather, 28, the fifth book of the Bible. And again, context before content. Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, is preaching three sermons. And these are the three final sermons before the people go into the promised land. He only has a couple of months to live. Now, if you and I knew that we only had a couple of months to live, what would you and I say would characterize our conversations with people? They would be pretty what? Serious, wouldn't they? We would get right to the point with people that we love and care for. And that's the context now. He's got three sermons. He's getting right to the point. He's speaking on behalf of God before he dies on the top of Mount Nebo and God moves the people into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And in chapter 28, God is going to describe to the people the difference, the difference that they're going to experience in life if they obey him or not. Here we go. Chapter 28. Notice in verse 12. This is the blessing that will come to you, 
God says, if you follow me, when you get into that promised land, if you follow me, the Lord will open the heavens, the storehouses of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from how many? None. If you follow me, if you're faithful to me, you're going to lend to many and borrow from none. That's on one side of the decimal point of interest. Now he, in the same chapter, is going to tell him, this is what's going to happen to you if you reject me. This is what's going to happen to you if you do not follow me faithfully. And he says in chapter 28, notice with me, um, in verse 43, the alien, the foreigner, who lives among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. He will lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He will be the head, but you will be the tail. When we looked at that ginormous number of our statutory debt, $22.8 trillion and climbing, escalating, a lot of our national debt is owned by foreign countries. Many other nations are lending to us. We're not lending to anybody. We're just giving it away. We're giving, over, uh, giving away money, hand over fist, money that could be paid on the what? On the debt. And yet we're borrowing money from other countries to give to still other countries when we can't even pay our own bills. You talk about insanity in Washington. Absolute licensed, board-certified insanity, and there are no strong, courageous leaders to bring this up. We just, as a people, have to deal with it. So there's a difference. What side of interest we're going to be on? Are we going to be paying interest, or are we going to be receiving interest? Then notice with me over in Matthew, please, chapter 18, Jesus, he's using a parable, one of his favorite teaching moments, methods, and he's talking about forgiveness. And in chapter 18, he's writing about or speaking about a guy who had this ginormous debt. And in verse uh, 25, Jesus says, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, his wife, his children, and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. So what we're talking about is something that is absolutely extreme. Now, people were sold in the Bible day, in Bible culture background times, people were sold as indentured servants to repay debt. It was quite common. Now, we're not doing that today, but I believe that there are extreme costs to uh, debt, debt mismanagement. For example, if uh, I said to Leah, hey, Leah, why don't we take and do Christmas this year on the card? We're going to put Christmas on the card this year. Man, we've been working so hard. We, we want the kids to have a good time, the grandkids, and uh, we're going to uh, leave Indianapolis on the day after Christmas. We're going to get all the gifts on the card, and then we're going to take the kids and the grandkids to Disney World for a whole week. We're going to get a couple of condominiums. We're going to go to all the parks, and we're going to get back. It would be very easy to spend $7,500, all right? That's the number I'm going to give you as an example. Be so very easy. And you're thinking, oh, no, that's way too much. No, go to Disney with the grandkids. It costs you $1 million for one day. That's what it's costing now, okay? It is not cheap to go to Disney with the grandkids. All right, now, so if we put $7,500 for Christmas on the card, 
And then we say, okay, we're going to pay it off. We're just going to pay the minimum amount every month, the minimum amount, and it's 18% interest. I'm going to even keep it down from the 21 and 22% cards. We're going to just leave it at 18% interest, minimum payment, $7,500. You want to know how long and how much Christmas will cost us this year, Christmas this year? Christmas this year, $7,500, we will have repaid $23,000 for Christmas, and it will not be paid for for 30 years. Do you understand the extreme cost of debt? Do not listen to the wrong voices like Aaron, the high priest. Do not listen to the wrong voices. I used to be a mortgage lender, a commercial lender in a bank. I know all about loaning money. Don't listen to the wrong voices. B, it's bondage. Debt is bondage. It says so in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. It says that the servant is, uh, or excuse me, the, the borrower is servant to the lender in verse 7, chapter 22 of Proverbs. The borrower is servant to the lender. So if I have shackled myself in all kinds of debt, student loan, mortgage, car payment, boat payment, uh, cabin payment, cottage payment, credit card payments out of the kazoo, and if all of a sudden God stirs me, hey, why don't you go on this short-term mission trip? You're a good builder. Go on that mission trip that the church, I can't possibly go because I am servant to the lender. I have no, uh, no margin of, of access to money to, to do that. I have become a, in bondage to the people who, to whom I have borrowed money. Now here's the good news, listen up. Debt is not sinful. Nowhere in this book does it say that debt is sin. What this book teaches us is that debt is not the best way. All right, not the best way. Now go with me please to Deuteronomy one more time, chapter 15. What you and I want to see is that debt should be temporary. It's got to be temporary. And in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1, we want to look at verse 1. Again, these are the final words of Moses to the people. And he says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Imagine if at the end of every seven years, your debts and mine were canceled. Oh, that mortgage, oh, no, no longer present. Oh, those student loans, oh, oh forgiven. At the end of every seven years, cancel debts. You must, not an option, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. At the end of how many years? Tell me, seven, that's right, seven years. Listen up. Uh, mortgages came to the United States from merry old England. Historically, the earliest record we have of a mortgage was 1190, and it was in England, and mortgages came to the United States with the, the colonists. Now, back in the day, mortgages in the United States, when we look in the early 1900s, when mortgages started to be written about 1928, 1932, 1935, the longest mortgage available in the United States was seven years, based on the what? The word of God. Is that not incredible? My, 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 how far we have come as a country. Back in the day when I was uh, a loan officer in a very large bank up in Michigan, my home, home uh, state, 
People would come in to get a car loan, brand new car. You know how long we would finance their car at the bank? 36 months. Longest loan, I remember when it went to 48 months, we, we thought, oh no, the world, the sky is falling. 48 months, now you and I, we, it's very common, we can get a car loan, brand new car loan for 84 months. We can pay on that thing for seven years. It's gonna be a rust bucket by the end, we, uh, by the time we make our seventh payment. That's not temporary. Debt is not condemned in this book. I would venture to think all of us in this room would have to get a mortgage to buy a what? A house, especially out here on the West Coast, all right? My goodness, cost of living is so much higher out here. Now, what we want to do is buy a house that is reasonable, that can be paid for as quickly as possible. As a matter of fact, in that book, I tell you how you can pay that mortgage off in half the time, how a 30-year mortgage can become a 15-year mortgage without a single fee paid to the bank. Banks aren't gonna tell you that, but I know that because I used to be a banker. And I followed that principle, and Leah and I, we paid off our mortgage many, many, many years ago following what I tell you in that book to do. It's very simple, it's not hard. So the key is debt, D-E-B-T. It's not sinful, but it's not the best way. We want to get out of debt as quickly as possible. That's what we want to do in some way, and I believe we can. As a matter of fact, Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 13, he says in verse 8, do not let any debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. When you and I do that, we fulfill the law. As a matter of fact, in the verses just preceding verse 8, verse 6 and 7, Paul says, if you, if you owe taxes, then pay what? Taxes. If you owe somebody something, pay it back. He's talking about practical things. Whenever the Apostle Paul wrote a letter, the first part of the letter is theological, the last part of the letter is practical, and this is all practical at the end of Romans. He says, if you owe somebody, pay it back and get to the point where you owe no one anything, owe no one anything except the continuing debt to love one another. That's what he's saying. And I believe, here here we are, we're about right here, okay? We're almost there, this is how we do it. If we're going to learn to live with less in the land of more, if we're going to not have debt as a place of bondage, we have to do what Paul said, write this down, Philippians chapter four, verse 11. Remember, Paul is incarcerated. Philippians is one of his prison letters. He's writing from behind bars. He's incarcerated. He's not a free man. And he's writing to the church at Philippi, thanking them for their love and their support. And right towards the end, Paul says, chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, I have learned to be what? Anybody know the word? Content. There it is. I've learned to be content. He even says in verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content. And that in Greek, secret of being content, means that he was initiated into this way of living. He was not born with the contentment gene. There is no such thing in our gene pool. There's no DNA of contentment. It is a learned behavior. Listen up. How we think determines how we live. And that's what, this is where contentment begins, right here. I don't need that $120 pair of jeans. I'm going to go to Target and get some jeans for $19.99. I can be content. You see what I'm saying? When we learn to be content, the secret of being content 
Paul says, whether living in plenty or in want, whether well-fed or hungry, he was at peace. And that, for me, is my hope for you. When you and I can say like the Apostle Paul, don't need a newer car, don't need any more clothes, don't need a bigger house, don't need a, a more stupendous trip. Oh, the neighbors, they just got back from the French Riviera. I guess I gotta go on vacation in my 1992 Buick Riviera. I'm just going camping in my Buick Riviera. But yes, that's what I'm gonna do. When you and I learn to be content, life changes. It really does. What I wrote in that book is what Leah and I have practiced for 41 years, and it's real. This book always works, always, always, always works, signed by the blood of Jesus. Charlie Steinmetz was a buddy of uh, Henry Ford. Charlie Steinmetz was one of the great minds of our country. He was an electrical engineer, and Charlie designed the huge electrical generators of the first automotive plant in Dearborn, Michigan. And uh, one day, the plant went dark, and the assembly line came to a screeching halt, and the maintenance workers, they tried to figure out what was wrong, and they couldn't. They couldn't figure it out. And so Henry said, I'll get Charlie over here. Guess we got to hire Charlie again. And so Charlie came in. He tinkered around for a few hours. He threw a switch, and the plant roared to life. And Henry was happy because Henry was making some money. Henry liked to make money. And here came those Model Ts down the assembly line. Well, Henry was happy until he got the bill from Charlie Steinmetz. And he opens the bill, and he unfolds it, and it said... Uh, $10,000, and that was a princely sum back in the early 1900s. Henry, he, it took his breath away. He, he wrote a note, Charlie, isn't this a bit much for a few hours of tinkering around, question mark, H. Ford? He folded it up, gave it to a courier, and he said, take that to Charlie, please. The courier arrived at Charlie's office. Charlie opened the bill. He thought, oh, this is odd. The bill is coming back. He read the note, huh? Henry again, thinking this is too much. So he wrote a new bill for Henry. And he gave it to the courier, and the courier took it back to Henry, and Henry opens the new bill. And the new bill said, for three hours of tinkering around, $10. For knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Total due, $10,000. And Henry paid the bill. Friends, the Holy Spirit, hopefully right now, is tinkering. He is God in our skin. That means he wants to be in charge. He's God. When it says in Ephesians 5, verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled. That be filled is a command in Greek. It's present tense, meaning it never stops and it's an issue of control. You and I are going to be filled only to the point that we allow the Holy Spirit to be in control. When he says to us something, he's shouting in our minds, don't do this. Get off from that website on your phone. You have no business being there. And he's shouting, shut this down, shut this down. And we go, oh, no, I'm not. We're not full of the Holy Spirit in that moment. 
when we're blabbering, when we're hitting post, something to Facebook that should not be there. And he's shouting, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and we do it instead. We are not filled with the Holy Spirit. When we're signing on the dotted line for this great, newer, bigger, faster something, and he's saying, don't do this, this is stupid, don't do this, be content with what you have, and we do it anyway, we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. So right now, I'm hoping and praying that the Holy Spirit is tinkering around beginning with me and then extending to you because we are all on the same team. We're team Jesus and we want to advance his kingdom. We want to make his name forever the famous one. His brother wrote in the book of James, he said, don't be a mere hearer of the word, be a what? Doer. So are we going to let it go in one ear today and out the other? Or is he going to change our hearts? Sermon on the Mount Jesus said, Matthew said in chapter 6, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Uh-uh. Loved one, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. God, we are so grateful. You have fed us, we're not hungry. You have clothed us, we're not naked. You have sheltered us, we're not homeless. We have so much for which to give thanks. Father, you are outrageously generous. And to top it off, you give to us your one and only Son that we would not lie in the grave, but that we would have the gift of life everlasting. You are outrageously generous. Would you, Holy Spirit, change us? Make us more like Jesus as we walk out than when we walked in. May we obey in your strength. And God's people say, amen.